Welcome to the September 2012 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess along with Sarah Moore. We have a lot of papers to discuss, so Sarah, let's get started. Our first paper is Randomized Controlled Trial of a Breath-Activated Nebulizer in Patients with Exacerbation of COPD by Haynes. This study sought to determine whether the AeroEclipse 2 breath-activated nebulizer would produce greater bronchodilator responses than a continuous-flow small-volume nebulizer in patients with COPD exacerbation. Forty patients with COPD exacerbation were recruited to participate in the randomized controlled trial. The primary study outcomes were inspiratory capacity and dyspnea via the Borg scale. Subjects were randomized to receive bronchodilator from either a breath-actuated nebulizer or a continuous-flow small-volume nebulizer. Subjects in both groups received 2.5 mg albuterol sulfate and 0.5 mg epitropium bromide by nebulizer every 4 hours and 2.5 mg albuterol every 2 hours as needed. Approximately two hours after the subject's sixth scheduled nebulizer treatment, inspiratory capacity, dyspnea, respiratory frequency, and heart rate measurements were repeated. Following completion of the study protocol, the breath-activated nebulizer group had a higher inspiratory capacity than the small-volume nebulizer group. The change in inspiratory capacity was also higher in the breath-actuated nebulizer group. The breath-actuated nebulizer group also had a lower respiratory rate. There was no difference in resting dyspnea as measured with the Borg scale or in hospital stay. The author concludes that in this cohort of patients with COPD exacerbation, a breath-actuated nebulizer was more effective in reducing lung hyperinflation and respiratory frequency than a continuous-flow small-volume nebulizer. The breath-activated nebulizer is a relatively new design. Haynes reports that the breath-activated nebulizer was more effective in reducing lung hyperinflation and respiratory frequency than a conventional jet nebulizer. As Lynn and Fink state in their editorial, this is the first direct comparison of the breath-activated nebulizer against a conventional nebulizer using the same drug dose and volume. Whether the benefit of the breath-activated nebulizer outweighs the additional cost of the nebulizer and administration time is yet to be determined. Next we have the paper, Risk Factors for Pediatric Intensive Care Admission in Children with Acute Asthma by Vandenbosch and colleagues. The study used a retrospective multicenter case control design. The cases included children admitted to the pediatric ICU because of severe acute asthma and a history of outpatient treatment by pediatricians or pediatric pulmonologists. Controls were children with asthma without a pediatric ICU admission for severe acute asthma. The children were matched for sex, age, hospital, and time elapsed since the diagnosis of asthma. 14 possible risk factors were analyzed. 66 cases were matched to 164 controls. In univariate analysis, all but one of the analyzed variables were significantly associated with pediatric ICU hospitalization. After multivariate conditional logistic regression analysis, four risk factors remained significant. These included active or passive smoking, allergies, earlier hospitalization for asthma, and non-sanitized home. The authors conclude that physicians and parents should be aware of these risk factors and efforts should be made to counteract them. 
Severe acute asthma in children is associated with substantial morbidity and may require pediatric ICU admission. Vandenbosch and colleagues found that significant risk factors for pediatric ICU admission were active or passive smoking, allergies, earlier hospitalization, and non-sanitized home. As Mars explains in his editorial, these are common triggers and events in children with asthma. Whether modification of the risk factors reduces PICU admission rate remains to be determined. Associations of Asthma Symptoms with Active and Passive Smoking in Hong Kong Adolescents is by Mock et al. A total of 6,494 Hong Kong secondary school students participated in the Health-Related Behavior General Survey in 2000-2001. They reported their demographic factors, lifestyles, and asthma symptoms in the questionnaire. In addition, number of smoking parents and presence of smoking best friend were assessed. Logistic regression models were used to determine the odds ratio of frequently having the asthma symptoms for different smoking status of students, parents, and best friend, with adjustment for demographic factors and lifestyles. The prevalence of former, light, and heavy smokers was 17.5%, 7.7%, and 1%, respectively. Moreover, 35.1% of the participants had one, and 3.8% had two parents who smoked. Heavy smokers were more likely to experience exercise-induced bronchospasm and nocturnal cough, as well as both symptoms, when compared to those who never smoked. The corresponding odds ratio for having at least one smoking parent and a smoking best friend was 1.45, 1.61, and 2.43 when compared with those without a parent or best friend who smoked. The authors conclude that adolescents who are heavy smokers and having parents and a best friend who smoke are more likely to have asthma symptoms than others. The study by Mock et al. investigated the associations of active and passive smoking with asthma symptoms in secondary school students in Hong Kong. Not surprising, they found that adolescents who were heavy smokers and those having parents and a best friend who smoke are more likely to have asthma symptoms. As Goodfellow points out, this study highlights the importance of tobacco and air quality regulation. Next is the paper, Effects of Expiratory Positive Airway Pressure on Dynamic Hyperinflation During Exercise in Patients with COPD by Montero and colleagues. The author sought to determine the effects of EPAP on operational lung volumes during exercise in patients with COPD. This was a non-randomized experimental comparison of two exercise conditions with and without EPAP, where patients completed a treadmill exercise test and performed before and immediately immediately after exercise, lung volume measurements. Those who overtly developed dynamic hyperinflation, as defined by at least a 15% reduction from pre-exercise inspiratory capacity, were invited for additional research visit to repeat the same exercise protocol while receiving EPAP through a spring-loaded resistor face mask. The primary outcome was inspiratory capacity variance after exercise under the two exercise conditions. 
46 patients with moderate to severe COPD were initially enrolled. From this initial sample, 37% presented overt dynamic hyperinflation. Comparing before and after exercise, there was significantly less reduction in inspiratory capacity observed when EPAP was used, allowing greater inspiratory capacity final values. The authors conclude that application of EPAP reduced dynamic hyperinflation, as shown by lower operational lung volumes after submaximal exercise in patients with COPD who previously manifested exercise dynamic hyperinflation. EPAP does not unload respiratory muscles, but may reduce the inspiratory threshold load and attenuate dynamic airway collapse. In this study, it was found that application of EPAP reduced dynamic hyperinflation after submaximal exercise in subjects with COPD who previously manifested exercise-induced dynamic hyperinflation. As explained by Hernandez and Pita, this simple and affordable device has the potential to optimize exercise training in patients with COPD. Nasal versus oronasal mask in home mechanical ventilation, the preference of patients as a strategy for choosing the interface, is by Fernandez and colleagues. The objective of this study was to explore patient preference when prescribing the mask for non-invasive ventilation and assess its relationship with effectiveness. It was a prospective study with repeated measures in stable patients receiving home nocturnal ventilation. Alternating oronasal mask and nasal mask were tested in day and overnight sessions with arterial blood gases measured and pulse oximetry monitored. At the end of each evening session, patients rated interface comfort using a visual analog scale. At three months, the authors evaluated adherence and effectiveness of the treatment. 29 patients completed the study. Both the oronasal mask and the nasal mask significantly decreased PCO2. Over a third of the patients preferred the oronasal mask, while the nasal mask was deemed more comfortable in general. At three months, effectiveness and adherence showed no differences between those treated with nasal mask or oral nasal mask. The authors conclude that patient choice is an effective criterion for selecting the interface in the treatment of home mechanical ventilation. The interface is a key factor for patient comfort and adherence during non-invasive ventilation. Hernandez and colleagues found that about a third of patients preferred the oronasal mask, but the nasal mask was generally considered more comfortable. After three months, effectiveness and adherence were no different between those who used the nasal mask and those who used the oronasal mask. The results of this study suggest that patient choice should be a criterion for selecting the interface for non-invasive ventilation. The paper, Prophylactic Use of Helmet CPAP After Pulmonary Lobectomy, a prospective randomized controlled study, is by Barbagayo and colleagues. The authors randomly allocated 50 subjects to receive continuous oxygen therapy with an FiO2 of 0.4 or two cycles of helmet CPAP for 120 minutes, alternating with oxygen therapy for four hours. Blood gas values were collected at admission to the ICU 
after 1, 3, 7, 9, and 24 hours, and then in the thoracic ward after 48 hours and 1 week after surgery. The authors investigated the incidence of postoperative complications, mortality, and length of hospital stay. At the end of the second helmet CPAP treatment, the subjects had a significantly higher PaO2 to FiO2 ratio compared with the control group, but the improvement in oxygenation did not continue beyond 24 hours. The post-operative preventive helmet CPAP treatment was associated with a significantly shorter hospital stay in comparison to standard treatment. The number of minor or major post-operative complications was similar between the two groups. No difference in ICU readmission or mortality was observed. The authors conclude that prophylactic use of helmet CPAP improved the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, but the oxygenation benefit was not lasting. They did find that helmet CPAP was a secure and well-tolerated method in subjects who underwent pulmonary lobectomy. In this study, the authors found that, although the PaO2-FiO2 ratio improved on CPAP, the benefit was not sustained. Postoperative complications, ICU admission, and mortality were similar between the two groups. Although a helmet was used to provide CPAP in this study, likely similar results would have occurred with other interfaces such as the ones used in North America. Further work is needed to identify the role of CPAP in the postoperative period. Next is the paper, Nocturnal Oximetry in Transcutaneous Carbon Dioxide in Home-Ventilated Neuromuscular Patients by Nardi et al. The objective of this study was to determine whether pulse oximetry and transcutaneous carbon dioxide during the same night were interchangeable or complementary for assessing home mechanical ventilation efficiency in patients with neuromuscular diseases. Data were collected retrospectively from the charts of 58 patients with chronic neuromuscular respiratory failure receiving follow-up at a home mechanical ventilation unit. Pulse oximetry and transcutaneous PCO2 were recorded during a one-night hospital stay as part of standard patient care. Hypoventilation was detected based on transcutaneous PCO2 alone in 41% of the patients and based on pulse oximetry alone with three different cutoffs in 5%, 14%, and 22% of patients respectively. Using both transcutaneous PCO2 and pulse oximetry showed hypoventilation in 43% of patients. The authors concluded that pulse oximetry alone is not sufficient to exclude hypoventilation when assessing home mechanical ventilation efficiency in patients with neuromuscular diseases. Both transcutaneous PCO2 and pulse oximetry should be recorded overnight as the first-line investigation in this population. Hypoventilation is rarely accompanied with ventilation perfusion mismatch in patients with neuromuscular diseases. Therefore, oximetry may be less sensitive for detecting alveolar hypoventilation than in patients with lung disease. Nardi and colleagues evaluated whether nocturnal pulse oximetry and transcutaneous carbon dioxide were interchangeable or complementary for assessing home mechanical ventilation efficiency. They found that pulse oximetry alone was not sufficient to exclude hypoventilation when assessing ventilation efficiency in patients with neuromuscular disease. They suggest that transcutaneous carbon dioxide and pulse oximetry should be recorded overnight in this patient population.
Our next paper is, A reduction in the use of volunteer descriptors of air hunger is associated with increased walking distance in people with COPD by Williams and colleagues. This study investigated whether descriptors of breathlessness differed after participation in an eight-week pulmonary rehabilitation program and whether changes in sensory quality would be reflective in responsiveness to pulmonary rehabilitation. People with COPD provided descriptors for their sensation of breathlessness before and after an eight-week pulmonary rehabilitation program. Primary outcomes for responsiveness to pulmonary rehabilitation were the six-minute walk distance and the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire. Of the 107 people referred to the pulmonary rehabilitation program, 94 met the spirometric criteria for COPD, with 58 having data for pre- and post-assessments. A significant proportion of subjects reduced descriptors of air hunger and depression, regret, and helplessness following rehabilitation. Subjects reducing their use of descriptors of air hunger had greater improvements in the six-minute walk distance after rehabilitation. The authors conclude that sensory quality of breathlessness was modified for approximately one-third of the patients after pulmonary rehabilitation, with significant improvements in the six-minute walk distance for subjects who reduced their use of descriptors of air hunger. Williams et al. evaluated whether descriptors of breathlessness differed after participation in an eight-week pulmonary rehabilitation program. They found that the sensory quality of breathlessness was modified for about a third of subjects after pulmonary rehabilitation. Moreover, there were significant improvements in the six-minute walk distance for subjects who reduced their use of descriptors of air hunger. The paper, Breathing Movements of the Chest and Abdominal Wall in Healthy Subjects, is by Kaneko and Hori. The purpose of this study was to determine the three-dimensional distances of observational points on the thorax and abdomen during breathing in healthy subjects and assess the effects of age, posture, and sex on breathing movements. The authors studied the three-dimensional breathing movement distances on the thorax and abdomen in 100 healthy subjects. Breathing movements were measured with a three-dimensional motion system during quiet and deep breathing with subjects in supine and sitting positions. 13 reflective markers were placed on the upper and lower abdomen. Range of movement in both breathing conditions was measured as a three-dimensional distance at half respiratory cycle. Respiratory rates were calculated based on the breathing movements analyzed. The average marker distances from the thorax and abdomen during quiet breathing were less than one-third of those during deep breathing. Upper thoracic movement was significantly decreased with age. There was less abdominal movement in females than in males, except during quiet breathing in the supine position. The distances between the thoracic markers were greater, and those of the abdomen were less during quiet and deep breathing in the sitting position, compared with those in the supine position. The authors conclude that the observed breathing movements were related to the effects of age, sex, and posture. In this paper, the authors determined the three-dimensional distances of observational points on the thorax and abdomen during breathing in healthy subjects and assessed the effects of age, posture, and sex on breathing movements. They found that the observed breathing movements were related to the effects of age, sex, and posture. This information may be helpful in assessing breathing movement by physical examination.
Next, we have the paper, An Integrated Index Combined with Dynamic Hyperinflation and Exercise Capacity in the Prediction of Morbidity and Mortality in COPD by Osgur and colleagues. The authors aim to assess the impact of dynamic hyperinflation and exercise capacity in predicting mortality and morbidity as evaluated by emergency visits and hospital admissions in COPD patients during a four-year period. They recruited 73 stable patients with COPD. The relationships of different respiratory parameters, static hyperinflation is measured by the ratio of inspiratory capacity to total lung capacity at rest, dynamic hyperinflation, arterial PO2, and PCO2 with emergency visits and hospital admissions because of exacerbations, and also with respiratory and all-cause mortality were assessed. The median follow-up period was 47 months. During the follow-up, there were eight deaths. The Kaplan-Meier survival curve showed that the cumulative survival rate was significantly lower in the patients with dynamic hyperinflation and with a six-minute walk distance less than 439 meters. The Cox proportional hazards model showed that the dynamic hyperinflation and six-minute walk distance were independent predictors of all-cause and respiratory mortality. The authors conclude that dynamic hyperinflation inflation and exercise capacity are reliable and independent predictors for mortality and morbidity in COPD patients. Using this integrated index that combined dynamic hyperinflation and exercise capacity was predictive of morbidity and mortality in 73 stable subjects with COPD. Dynamic hyperinflation and exercise capacity may be reliable and independent predictors for mortality and also morbidity in COPD patients. Thus, it seems reasonable that dynamic hyperinflation and exercise capacity should be considered in the assessment of long-term clinical consequences of COPD. Upright positive expiratory pressure therapy and exercise effects on gastroesophageal reflux in COPD and bronchiectasis is by Lee and colleagues. This study aimed to determine if positive expiratory pressure therapy and standardized exercise tasks were associated with increased gastroesophageal reflux. During dual probe 24-hour esophageal pH monitoring, all patients undertook a single session of PEP therapy, a six-minute walk test, and a grocery shelving task. The number of reflux episodes and fractional reflux time were recorded during each intervention and compared to equivalent background time. 57 patients completed the study. Episodes of isolated distal esophageal reflux occurred in 31% of patients during positive expiratory pressure therapy, 25% during the 6-minute walk test, and 31% during the grocery shelving task. However, there was no significant difference in distal reflux during the 6-minute walk test or positive expiratory pressure therapy compared to equivalent background time. The number of reflux episodes was decreased compared to equivalent background time during the grocery shelving task and 6-minute walk test, but not during the PEP therapy. The authors conclude that episodes of gastroesophageal reflux may occur during physiotherapy tasks, including airway clearance therapy using PEP, the 6-minute walk test, and a measure of upper limb movement. However, as these activities did not increase the frequency of these events, no modifications to these tasks to minimize the occurrence of gastroesophageal reflux are necessary.
It is interesting that these authors found that gastroesophageal reflux may occur during airway clearance therapy with positive expiratory pressure, the six-minute walk test, and a measure of upper limb movement, the grocery shelving task. However, because these activities did not increase the frequency of events, no modifications to these tasks to minimize the occurrence of gastroesophageal reflux are necessary. Are crackles an appropriate outcome measure for airway clearance therapy is by Marks and colleagues. This study was designed to assess changes in lung crackles before and after single session of airway clearance therapy. 23 stable patients with bronchiectasis were recruited from the United Kingdom outpatient clinics and treated with a single session of airway clearance therapy using the active cycle of breathing technique. Sound recordings were made before and after the session at seven anatomical chest locations. 57% of participants had a difference in crackles before and after the intervention. Perceived breathlessness was significantly reduced post-intervention. No significant changes were observed in either lung function or oxygen saturation. The authors concluded that crackle duration was found to change after a single session of airway clearance therapy and shows promise as a new outcome measure for respiratory therapy interventions. In this study, computerized lung sound analysis was used to measure crackle parameters before and after airway clearance therapy. Crackle duration was found to change after a single session of airway clearance therapy. This has potential as an objective outcome measure for respiratory therapy interventions. However, further work is necessary before this can be implemented into usual patient care. Next is the paper, Severity of Obstructive Sleep Apnea in Patients with and Without Cardiovascular-Related Diseases by Simon and colleagues. The aim of this study was to examine if the presence of any of the cardiovascular-related diseases, including hypertension, diabetes mellitus, coronary artery disease, and or cerebrovascular disease, correlates with more severe obstructive sleep apnea. This was a retrospective study of patients referred to the author's sleep laboratory for suspected OSA were included. The data from the full night baseline and split night polysomnographic reports were reviewed. Data were then evaluated by logistic regression analysis to compare between two groups, the severity of OSA, other polysomnographic variables, and daytime sleepiness score. 190 patients were analyzed. The patients with any of the cardiovascular-related diseases were noted to have more severe sleep apnea with an adjusted odds ratio of 3.24, sleep efficiency greater than or equal to 90%, and mean oxygen saturation greater than or equal to 95% were observed less commonly in the patients with any of the cardiovascular-related diseases. There was no statistically significant difference in sleepiness score. The authors concluded that patients with any of the cardiovascular-related diseases are at a higher risk of having moderate to severe OSA without significant increase in daytime sleepiness. In this study, the severity of obstructive sleep apnea in patients with and without cardiovascular-related diseases was evaluated. The authors found that patients with cardiovascular-related diseases are at higher risk of having moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea, but without daytime sleepiness. 
This suggests that patients with cardiovascular-related diseases should be screened for obstructive sleep apnea even if they are asymptomatic. Our final original research paper this month is Electrical Activity of the Diaphragm in a Small Cohort of Term Neonates by Stein and colleagues. This is a small case series to establish preliminary values of the electrical activity of the diaphragm in term neonates and to determine how these values vary while awake and asleep and during feeding states. Three term neonates in room air and nibbling feeds at the time of the study were observed for four hours. The electrical activity of the diaphragm was measured by electrodes within a nasogastric tube positioned at the level of the diaphragm. Respiratory rate and heart rate were also recorded. Time while awake and asleep were noted. Feeding states included feeding 30 minutes preprandial and 30 minutes postprandial. The mean peak electrical activity of the diaphragm was 11 microvolts. The mean minimum electrical activity of the diaphragm was 3 microvolts. Peak and minimum were higher while awake, and the peak was lowest postprandial. The authors conclude that this data may be useful in identifying respiratory pathology in neonates and monitoring progression towards respiratory health. Normative values of electrical activity of the diaphragm in full-term neonates are not known. Stein and colleagues found a higher diaphragmatic electrical activity in neonates while awake, which may reflect larger tidal volume to meet increased metabolic requirements when awake and active. They also found a lower postprandial diaphragmatic electrical activity and higher respiratory rate, which may indicate compensation for decreased tidal volume from increased intra-abdominal pressure. Our reviews address Eisenmenger syndrome and pediatric high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. Our case reports deal with Williams-Campbell syndrome, pleural effusion, and allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, and post-pneumonectomy hypoxemia. The teaching cases address hydrothorax after retraction of a subclavian central venous catheter and spontaneous expectoration of tumor tissue in a patient. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.